Hello, welcome to this reading of the Sioux City Journal for February 9th, Friday. I'm your reader, Mark Bedford. We'll start with today's weather. Today should be breezy this afternoon with a high of 44 degrees. Tonight will be mostly cloudy with a low of 24 degrees. Saturday, it'll be sunny with areas of low clouds and a high of 40 degrees. And now we switch to local and state news. Split ruling in Gaussman school board case. Jury finds violation for one board meeting, not another. Caitlin Yamada reports from Sioux City. The Sioux City Community School Board violated Iowa Open Meetings Law in January 2022, District Judge Jeffrey Neary ruled Wednesday. In January 2023, former Superintendent Paul Gaussman filed a lawsuit against school board members Dan Greenwell, Jan George, Taylor Goodvin, and Bob Michelson, stating they violated open meetings laws. A trial took place on January 16th. The lawsuit dealt with two separate closed sessions, which Gaussman claimed were illegal meetings because board members cited the wrong Iowa Code sections in order to avoid notifying him of their discussion and decision to file a complaint against him with the Iowa Board of Educational Examiners. Neary ruled the meeting on January 24, 2022, violated open meetings law, but a November 30, 2022 meeting did not violate the law. We're pleased that the court ruled in our favor regarding the November 30, 2022 meeting and the filing of the BOEE complaint, George, who currently serves as board president, said in a statement. We're currently reviewing our options with respect to the January 24, 2022 ruling with our legal counsel regarding our future actions and affirmative defense of that meeting. Gaussman said the matter is still ongoing and cannot comment on pending litigation. However, even after being gone from Sioux City for over 18 months, I continue to have pride and respect for the work that was done by the team during my 14-year tenure with the Sioux City School District, staff, students, families, and community, he said in a statement. It is because of that respect that I felt it was important to model the behavior of standing up for myself when an illegal meeting was conducted by the Sioux City School Board. I look forward to bringing final resolution to this matter and allowing both parties to focus on what is important, providing educational opportunities for all children through service to our students and communities. Neary said the January 24th meeting went beyond its purpose of Gaussman's professional evaluation. The court is hard-pressed to see the discussion surrounding the filing of an ethics complaint with the IBOEE, as part of a performance and competency evaluation process, Neary said in the ruling. This court holds that that first portion of the meeting in closed session on January 24, 2022, was a violation of the Iowa Open Meetings Act, as it did not comport with the publicly stated reason and notice of the reason for the closed session. Neary ruled the November 30th was a legal closed session as documents filed with the Iowa Board of Educational Examiners should be treated as confidential and discussed in a closed session. Because Neary found the district did violate the open meetings law in January 2022, a second trial could be conducted to determine remedies, penalties, or mitigation. 
On January 24, 2022, Gaussman stated the board met in a closed session to discuss him and his professional qualifications and proposed to file a complaint against him with the Iowa BOE. To go into the closed session, the board cited the Iowa Code section stating the closed session was to, quote, evaluate the professional competency of an individual whose appointment, hiring, performance, or discharge is being considered when necessary to prevent needless and irreparable injury to that individual's reputation. That code section specifically states the individual being reviewed must request the closed session, Gaussman claimed that did not occur. He contended items other pardon me, he contended other items were discussed. Documents reviewed in court showed the January twenty fourth meeting was set as a quarterly review of Gaussman's performance while he was still the superintendent. Greenwell and Goodwin testified the meeting included a discussion of Gaussman's quarterly review, as well as a discussion of the information filed in a Board of Educational Examiners complaint. The discussion claimed Gaussman attempted to bribe Michelson and George on November 17, 2021, before their official swearing-in on November 22, 2022. The letter to the Educational Examiners stated it was an attempt to solicit their support to re-elect Perla Alarcon-Flory to the Board President. If they were to support him in this, they would be able to, quote, make any of their desired changes in school operations, programs, activities, and other matters, according to the complaint. <laughs> Gaussman testified he was not attempting to bribe the board members and instead lobby them toward voting for two individuals for board leadership based on ongoing work. Evidence and testimony at the trial showed Gaussman knew of the meeting but did not know of the conversation regarding a bribery attempt which took place during the first half hour of the meeting. Testimony showed Gaussman was not in attendance for the first half hour. Gaussman asserted at trial that he, pardon me, that had he known about what was to be discussed in the first half hour of the closed session on January 24, 2022, he would not have agreed to the session being closed, and he would have taken that opportunity to respond to the discussion with his input and perspective, Neary said in his ruling. Neary ruled discussing the alleged bribery attempt goes beyond the general evaluation of professional competency and performance. On November 30, 2022, the board held another special meeting and closed session to discuss Gaussman, he claimed. The board cited another section of the state code, saying the meeting was to, quote, review or discuss records which are required or authorized by state or federal law to be kept confidential. That code section specifically says public bodies are only allowed to discuss confidential records, and Gaussman claimed the school board went beyond the specification. Testimony confirmed the meeting on November 30th was regarding the bribery accusations made against Gaussman and the process of filing a complaint with the BOEE. After the closed session ended and the board went into open session, Goodwin made a motion to direct Greenwell to file the BOEE complaint. Board members Monique Scarlett and Bernie Scalaro abstained from the vote. Perla Alarcon-Flory was not present. The motion did not publicly identify who the complaint was being filed against. The court concludes that the complaints at issue here 
and which were the subject of the closed session on November 30, 2022, are covered by the statutory protection establishing and maintaining their confidentiality, Neary said. Officers' shooting of suspect ruled justified. Nick Hytrek reports from Sioux Law enforcement officers' fatal shooting of a rural Hornick, Iowa man during an October standoff was justified to end the danger posed by a heavily armed man who had already killed his father and fired hundreds of rounds at authorities. Woodbury County Attorney James Loomis said he reached his conclusion after reviewing the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigations probe into the October 30th shooting of 44-year-old Walter Salzberger, who had a stockpile of ammunition plus night vision equipment and other tactical gear while holding an elevated strategic position in a cattle yard at one point telling crisis negotiators seeking a peaceful resolution to the situation, quote, it's too late for that. Salzberger was shot after opening fire on approaching officers with a legally purchased rifle that Woodbury County Sheriff Chad Sheehan said had been illegally modified to fire automatically. An autopsy determined Salzberger died of multiple gunshot wounds. The use of force was justified to put an end to that danger, Loomis said at a Thursday press conference, where he announced his findings with Sheehan. Loomis said there would be no charges filed against any of the officers involved in the shooting. Later Thursday, the Iowa Attorney General's office released a 13-page report in which it re reached the same conclusion as Loomis. The case is now considered closed. Sheriff's deputies initially responded to calls of cattle loose in the area of Todd Salzberger's feedlot around 7 p.m. October 29th at 2595 Old Highway 141. Half an hour later, Todd Salzberger called 911, telling the dispatcher his son Walter is crazy and is going to shoot us. Salzberger said his pickup truck had already been hit. He's going to kill me, Salzberger said. Communications were lost, and what sounded like a single gunshot was heard about a minute and a half into the call. There were no further calls from Todd Salzberger. When reached on his phone by his wife, Walter Salzberger told her he had killed his father and that he was on a hill in the cattle yard and was going to commit suicide, then hung up at about the time deputies began arriving. In a short video, Sheehan played for Media Thursday, a deputy's body cam video picked up the sound of automatic gunfire as he arrived at the scene. Sheehan activated the county's SWAT team, and the Sioux City Police Department's SWAT team also responded, along with the department's armored vehicle. An Iowa State Patrol SWAT team and its armored vehicle also were summoned, and a State Patrol airplane flew overhead to locate Salzburger who had set several hay bales on fire in an attempt to conceal his position. Negotiations continued with Salzberger over the phone for five and a half hours, and he refused to surrender. Around 2 a.m., authorities, concerned about ongoing public safety risks, decided to approach Salzberger to capture him and end the standoff. The Sioux City Police and State Patrol armored vehicles approached from opposite ends of the road on which Salzburger was stationed, and a four-person Sioux City SWAT team approached on foot from behind to prevent an escape. Salzburger opened fire on the armored vehicles, and in video shown Thursday, rounds could be heard striking the vehicle. Officers returned fire, and a gun battle lasting several minutes ensued until a ceasefire was ordered. Officers approaching Salzberger found him prone in front of his truck. 
He was not moving and was declared dead at the scene. Investigators found Sulzberger surrounded by an AR-15 rifle with drum magazine, night vision equipment, a helmet, armored plates, and large quantities of ammunition. In his truck, authorities found two handguns, ammunition, beer, and empty beer cans. The autopsy determined Sulzberger's blood alcohol content was 0.147%, well above the legal limit of 0.08%. Shortly after the standoff ended, officers found 72-year-old Todd Sulzberger dead in his overturned truck in a ditch with a single gunshot wound to the head. Sheehan said the intensity of the situation was unlike anything he'd experienced during his 30 years in law enforcement, and officers who had military combat experienced likened the gun battle with Salzburger to firefights they had experienced in Iraq. There's no way that any video we could show could accurately show the chaos of that night, Sheehan said. Sheehan said deputies had had no previous contact with Salzburger. The Attorney General's report said investigators searching Sulzberger's house found several weapons, more than 2,500 rounds of ammunition of various calibers, ammunition loading equipment, medical equipment, gas masks, body armor, and military meals ready to eat. No law enforcement officers were injured in the incident. Remember an American hero, Siouxland Freedom Park to commemorate Bud Day on his 99th birthday. Earl Horlick reports from South Sioux City. Whenever Marty Hogan thinks of George Everett Bud Day, he remembers a man of great faith, modesty, and character. He lived his life with a code of conduct, Hogan, a U.S. Air Force veteran, said of Day, a Sioux City native and decorated veteran of World War II, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War. He was the type of person who could inspire people. Day, who spent five and a half years as a prisoner of war during the Vietnam War, worked diligently on the behalf of fellow prisoners of war, as did his beloved wife, Doris. The 3,700-square-foot Brigadier General Bud and Doris Day Interpretive Center is the centerpiece of Siouxland Freedom Park at 1810 Veterans Drive. The center was named after Day, who died in 2013. A temporary Bud Day exhibit has been added to the Interpretive Center to commemorate what would have been his 99th birthday. Bud's birthday will be on February 24, 2024, Hogan, a Siouxland Freedom Park board member, explained. The display, which will be up for the entire month of February, will honor Bud and his family with both personal photos and pieces of memorabilia. First open in November, the Interpretive Center features interactive displays, artifacts, and exhibits which share the powerful, personal stories of Siouxland veterans through each phase of the military cycle, from enlistment, life in uniform, leaving home, coming home, and reintegration and adjustment. What I like best is that our center is all about veterans who called Siouxland their home, whether it be in Iowa, Nebraska, or South Dakota, Hogan said. Indeed, the Bud Day memorabilia was collected by Day's family or from a collection at the Iowa Air National Guard 185th Air Refueling Wing or from Jerry Day, a longtime Sioux City educator as well as Bud Day's second cousin. Jerry Day was my fourth grade teacher, Hogan said. She was probably the one who inspired my love of history. The Interpretive Center is open from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. on Saturdays.
Plans are currently in the works to include memorabilia of Bud and Doris Day as part of its permanent collection. It is my hope that young people will be inspired by Bud Day as much as I was, Hogan said. And now we turn to national and world news stories. Justices skeptical of case. Court seems poised to reject efforts to keep Trump off the ballot. From Washington. The Supreme Court seems poised to reject attempts to kick former President Donald Trump off the 2024 ballot. A definitive ruling for Trump, the leading Republican candidate for president, would largely end efforts in Colorado, Maine, and elsewhere to prevent his name from appearing on the ballot. During arguments Thursday, conservative and liberal justices alike questioned whether Trump can be disqualified from being president again because of his efforts to undo his loss in the 2020 election to Democrat Joe Biden, ending with the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. Their main concern was whether Congress must act before states can invoke a constitutional provision that was adopted after the Civil War to prevent former officeholders who engaged in insurrection from holding office again. There also were questions about whether the president is covered by the provision. Without such congressional legislation, Justice Elena Kagan was among several justices who wanted to know why a single state should decide who gets to be President of the United States. The outcome could reflect a broad consensus of the court, and it could come quickly. Eight of the nine justices suggested they were open to at least some of the arguments made by Jonathan Mitchell, Trump's lawyer at the Supreme Court. Only Justice Sonia Sotomayor sounded like she might vote to uphold the Colorado Supreme Court ruling that found that Trump engaged in insurrection and is ineligible to be president. The state court ruled Trump should not be on the ballot for the state's Republican primary on March 5th. In another sign of trouble for the Colorado voters who sued to remove Trump from the ballot, the justices spent almost no time talking about whether Trump actually engaged in insurrection following the 2020 election. Lawyer Jason Murray, representing the voters, pressed the point that Trump incited the Capitol attack to prevent the peaceful handover of power for the first time in history. Mitchell argued that the Capitol riot was not an insurrection and, even if it was, Trump did not participate. Trump, speaking to reporters after the proceedings, called the Supreme Court argument a beautiful thing to watch in many respects, even as he complained about the case being brought in the first place. The court indicated it will try to act quickly, shortening the period in which it receives written briefing and holds arguments. Israeli airstrikes kill 13 in Rafah. Blinken ends mission to region with open divides over ceasefire. From Rafah in the Gaza Strip, Israeli airstrikes killed over a dozen people overnight and into Thursday in Rafah in the Gaza Strip, hours after Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu rejected Hamas's ceasefire terms and vowed to expand the offensive into the southern Gaza town. U.S. President Joe Biden called Israel's military response in Gaza over the top and said he continues to work tirelessly to press Israel and Hamas to agree on an extended pause in fighting. I am of the view, as you know, that the conduct of the response in the Gaza Strip has been over the top, he told reporters in an exchange Thursday evening. More than half of the Strip's population has fled to Rafah, on the mostly sealed border with Egypt, which is also the main entry point for humanitarian aid. 
Egypt warned that any ground operation there, or mass displacement across the border, would undermine its four-decade-old peace treaty with Israel. The overnight strikes killed at least 13 people, including two women and five children, according to the Kuwaiti hospital which received the bodies. Israel's four-month-old offensive, among the most destructive in recent history, has killed more than 27,000 Palestinians, driven most people from their homes, and pushed a quarter of the population toward starvation. Netanyahu has said the offensive will continue and expand until total victory over Hamas militants. Hamas is still holding more than 130 hostages, but about 30 of them are believed to be dead. The United States, Qatar, and Egypt are trying to broker another ceasefire agreement to ensure the release of remaining hostages. But Hamas demanded an end to the war, a full Israeli withdrawal from Gaza, and the release of hundreds of Palestinian prisoners, including high-profile militants. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken left the Middle East on Thursday with public divisions between the United States and Israel at perhaps their worst level since Israel's war in Gaza began. Wrapping up a four-nation trip, his fifth to the Mideast since the conflict erupted, Blinken returned to Washington after getting a virtual slap in the face from Netanyahu, who appeared to outright reject Hamas's response to the ceasefire proposal. Report. Biden willfully retained classified docs. Justice Department concludes no criminal charges are warranted. From Washington. President Joe Biden willfully retained and disclosed highly classified materials when he was a private citizen, including documents about military and foreign policy in Afghanistan and other sensitive national security matters, according to a Justice Department report that nonetheless says no criminal charges are warranted for him or anyone else. Thursday's report from Special Counsel Robert Herr, a former U.S. attorney for Maryland, during the Trump administration, is harshly critical of Biden's handling of sensitive government materials, but also details reasons why he shouldn't be charged. The findings will likely blunt his ability to forcefully condemn Donald Trump, Biden's likely opponent in November's presidential election, over a criminal indictment charging the former president with illegally hoarding classified records at his Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida. Her's report says evidence suggests that many of the documents recovered at the Penn Biden Center in parts of Biden's Delaware home and in his Senate papers at the University of Delaware were retained by mistake. Senate begins work on help for Ukraine-Israel. Republicans rejected deal that included tightening the border. From Washington. The Senate on Thursday voted to begin working on a package of wartime funding for Ukraine, Israel, and other U.S. allies, but doubts remained about support from Republicans who earlier rejected a carefully negotiated compromise that also included border enforcement policies. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer called the latest vote a good first step and pledged that the Senate would keep working on this bill until the job is done. The vote to begin work on the new package cleared 67 to 32, with 17 Republicans, along with Democrats, voting to move forward. Senator Bernie Sanders, an independent from Vermont who opposes much of the aid for Israel, voted against it.
Schumer, a Democrat from New York, has tried to salvage $60 billion in aid for Ukraine, as well as about $35 billion for Israel, other allies, and national security priorities after the collapse this week of a bipartisan agreement to tie border enforcement policies to the package. If the measure passes the Senate, it is expected to be even more difficult to win approval in the Republican-controlled House. Some Republicans in the Senate have also vowed to do everything they could to delay final action. AI-generated voices outlawed in robocalls from New York. The Federal Communications Commission outlawed robocalls that contain voices generated by artificial intelligence Thursday, sending a clear message that exploiting the technology to scam people and mislead voters won't be tolerated. The unanimous ruling targets robocalls made with AI voice cloning tools under the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, a 1991 law restricting junk calls that use artificial and pre-recorded voice messages. It came as New Hampshire authorities probe AI-generated robocalls that mimicked President Joe Biden's voice to discourage people from voting in the state's primary last month. Effective immediately, the regulation empowers the FCC to find companies that use AI voices in their calls or block the service providers that carry them. It also opens the door for call recipients to file lawsuits and gives state attorneys general a new crackdown mechanism, the FCC said. <clears throat> Judge denies Navarro's bid to stay out of prison. A federal judge denied Trump White House official Peter Navarro's bid Thursday to remain out of prison while he appeals his contempt of Congress conviction for refusing to cooperate with an investigation into the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. Navarro was sentenced last month to four months behind bars after being found guilty of defying a House January 6 committee subpoena for documents and a deposition. The former White House trade advisor under President Donald Trump asked to be free while he fights the conviction and sentence. U.S. District Judge Amit Mehta said Navarro must report to serve his sentence when ordered, unless Washington's Federal Appeals Court steps in to block Mehta's order. The judge said Navarro offered no proof to back his claims and hadn't shown any of the issues he will raise on appeal are substantial questions of law. Austin. The Pentagon completed its review of Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's failure last month to quickly notify leaders about his hospitalization for complications from prostate cancer and how the notification process can be improved, submitting it Thursday. Ukraine War. Ukraine's president replaced his top general Thursday in a shakeup aimed at reigniting momentum in the war with Russia, appointing the commander of Ukraine's ground forces, Colonel General Oleksandr Sirsky, to lead the army. Red Sea. The U.S. conducted new airstrikes Thursday targeting Yemen's Houthi rebels, destroying four explosive-loaded drone boats and seven missile launchers that could target vessels in the Red Sea, the U.S. Central Command said. Whistleblower. The CIA this week terminated a woman whose whistleblower account of being assaulted at the spy agency's headquarters prompted colleagues to come forward with their own complaints of sexual misconduct. Her attorney called the action brazen retaliation. Detained. 
Israeli forces detained two young adult American brothers and their Canadian father in a raid on their Gaza home Thursday, relatives said. And finally, helicopter. The military confirmed Thursday that all five Marines were killed when their helicopter went down during stormy weather near San Diego, California, and efforts were underway to recover their remains. Once again, you are listening to this reading of the Sioux City Journal for Friday, uh, February 9th. On IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And now these sports stories, starting with the NBA. Doncic scores 39, leads Mavs over shorthanded Knicks. From New York, Luka Doncic had 39 points, 11 assists, and 8 rebounds to lead the Dallas Mavericks to a 122-108 win Thursday over the New York Knicks, who had just 7 players in the second half because of injuries and trades. Former Knicks guard Tim Hardaway Jr. added 19 points, and Derek Jones Jr. had 18 for the Mavericks, who won their third straight game. Kiri Irving finished with 16 points. Doncic scored 27 points in the second half, and his prettiest pass came early, a behind-the-back bullet that went 20 feet to Dwight Howell under the basket. Dante DiVincenzo scored 36 points for the Knicks, who have lost two of three following a nine-game winning streak. Josh Hart had a season-high 23 points and added 12 assists and 10 rebounds. Warriors 131, Pacers 109. Stephen Curry made his first seven three-pointers and scored 29 of his 42 points in the first half, helping Golden State beat host Indiana. Curry had a season-high 11 threes. Pascal Siakam scored 16 points for the Pacers. Timberwolves 129, Bucks 105. Anthony Edward had 26 points and 9 assists, and Minnesota shot 21 of 41 from three-point range to trounce host Milwaukee, which got 27 points from A.J. Green. Cavaliers 118, Nets 95. Donovan Mitchell scored 27 points, and visiting Cleveland beat shorthanded Brooklyn for its 8th straight victory and 16th in 17 games. The Cavaliers shot 53% from the field and had a 45-33 rebounding edge. Bulls 118, Grizzlies 110. DeMar DeRozan had 30 points on 11 of 17 shooting. Andre Drummond added 21 points and 30 and pardon me 13 rebounds and Chicago rallied in the final quarter to beat host Memphis. Suns 129, Jazz 115. Kevin Durant had 31 points, Bradley Beal scored 30, and Phoenix beat visiting Utah with all-star Devin Booker sidelined by a sore left hip. Laurie Markkanen had led the Jazz with 22 points. Magic 127, Spurs 111. Franz Wagner scored 34 points, and Orlando weathered a 30-point second half by Devin Vassell to beat visiting San Antonio. The Spurs have lost six straight games. Nuggets 114, Lakers 106. Jamal Murray had 29 points and 10 assists, and Nikola Jokic added 24 points and 13 rebounds to lead Denver past host Los Angeles. Anthony Davis scored 32 for the Lakers. Pistons 128, Trailblazers 122 in overtime. 
Jalen Duran had 27 points and 22 rebounds to lead Detroit to an overtime win over host Portland. Jeremy Grant had a career-high 49 points for the Trailblazers. In other NBA news, Knicks take big swing at trade deadline. Bojan Bogdanovic left Detroit to join a now even more formidable contender in New York. Gordon Hayward is leaving Charlotte for one of the league's best surprise stories this season in Oklahoma City. Doug McDermott was once traded by Indiana to San Antonio, and now the Spurs have traded him back to the Pacers. None of those shooters were making playoff plans when Thursday started. Trade deadline day in the NBA gave them and plenty of other players an entirely new outlook, plus may have even reshaped the start of the playoff push as well. The Knicks made some big moves with eyes on contending in the Eastern Conference. Philadelphia added a sharpshooter in Buddy Hild, with hopes that it can get back on track if reigning MVP Joel Embiid returns from injury, while Phoenix and Dallas added frontcourt depth. The Suns landed Royce O'Neal from Brooklyn, and the Mavericks are bringing in P.J. Washington from Charlotte. Kelly Olenek is heading back to his native Canada after getting acquired by Toronto in a deal with Utah. Milwaukee made a couple of notable moves, landing Patrick Beverly from the 76ers and sending Robin Lopez to Sacramento. Lots of people got better. That's fun for competition, Embiid told a wrote on social media. Honored, the Lakers on Thursday unveiled a 19-foot 4,000-pound bronze statue of Kobe Bryant outside of their arena in downtown Los Angeles. Bryant is the sixth player and seventh employee to be honored with a statue in Star Plaza. And the NBA stat of the day, 40-plus. Miles Bridges scored 41 points on Monday and another 45 on Wednesday to become only the fourth Charlotte Hornets player to record back-to-back 40-point performances. He joined Glenn Rice, twice, Kemba Walker, and Terry Rozier. And now these stories from the NHL. Surging Bruins blank Canucks from Boston. Brad Marchand and Danton Heinen scored shorthanded in the first period, and the Boston Bruins beat the Vancouver Canucks 4 to nothing on Thursday in a matchup of the NHL's top two teams. Linus Olmark stopped 17 shots for his first shutout of the season. Morgan Geeky and Pavel Zaka also scored, and Charlie Coyle set up both shorthanded goals. It was the eighth victory in 10 games for Boston, which tied Vancouver atop the league standings with 73 points. Hurricanes 5, Avalanche 2. Martin Nekas posted a natural hat trick in the first 17 minutes, the first three-goal game of his career, and Carolina beat visiting Colorado despite changing goalies twice. Panthers 4, Capitals 2. Ryan Lomberg scored the game-winning goal with 6 minutes and 52 seconds to go, and Florida defeated visiting Washington. Lomberg snapped a 32-game scoring drought. Flyers 4, Jets 1. Travis Konechny had a goal, an assist, and a fight in the first period, known as a Gordie Howe hat trick, to lead host Philadelphia over slumping Winnipeg. Flames 5, Devils 3. Jacob Markstrom made 37 saves. Connor Zeri and Andrew 
Manjapain, each had a goal and an assist, and Calgary beat host New Jersey for its third straight win. Islander 6, Lightning 2. Matthew Barzal and Bo Horvat each had a goal and an assist, and the New York fans broke out a Patrick Roy chant for their new coach as the Islanders beat visiting Tampa Bay. Golden Knights 3, Coyotes 2. Jonathan Marchessault scored 19 seconds into the game. Aiden Hill made 20 saves, and Vegas Golden defeated host Arizona. In other NHL news, Slavkovsky learning to trust his shot from Washington. After becoming the first Slovak player taken with the number one pick in the 2022 NHL draft, Juraj Slavkovsky is learning to trust his shot in his second season with Montreal. Slavkovsky entered the league as a six foot three, two hundred thirty pound pass first playmaker after helping Slovakia win its first Olympic hockey medal in the 2022 Beijing Olympics. He was named MVP of the tournament and then was a point a game player at the World Championships that spring. Slavkovsky had just four goals and six assists in 39 games during an injury-plagued rookie year with the Canadiens, but has already doubled that production through 50 games this season, with 22 points on nine goals and 13 assists. His shot is still a work in progress. It's a progression, said Montreal coach Martin St. Louis. He's going to keep evolving in that department. You always kind of find a way to reinvent yourself all the time. With a young player like that, though, he's working on his shot every day. Slavkovsky has scored three times in his past two games, sandwiched around the break, as he slowly builds the kind of confidence that teammates hope will allow him to let the puck to fly. You can see the confidence now that he has with his shot, teammate and forward Jake Evans said. Both of them were total snipes. That's huge for him, because when you've got a guy like that with his shot, having that confidence, it's pretty lethal, and it's going to help our team a lot. National Team Minnesota Wild General Manager and three-time U.S. Olympian Bill Guerin will be responsible for overseeing the building of the United States teams competing in the Four Nations Face-Off Tournament next year and the 2026 Winter Games. Lightning Tampa Bay defenseman Mikhail Sergachev will be sidelined indefinitely after undergoing surgery to stabilize fractures to both the tibia and fibula in his left leg. And the NHL stat of the day, 30. Pittsburgh's Chris Letang is the 21st defenseman in NHL history to record at least 30 points 14 times. Letang is in his 18th season with the Penguins. Ray Bork leads the list with at least 30 points in 22 seasons. A couple of stories in golf from the Phoenix Open. Figala takes early lead in Scottsdale from Scottsdale, Arizona. Sahith Figala spent time with his parents in the players' dining room and grabbed a bite to eat during what ended up being a long weather delay. With no room to sit in the clubhouse at TPC Scottsdale, Figala went out to his car to get warm, listen to music, and play chess on his phone. The break did nothing to slow him down. Thigala returned to birdie his first hole following the delay, shooting a 6-under-65 to take the early lead in the unfinished first round of the Phoenix Open on Thursday. 
The weather was, it was not good, but those last four holes felt great. So I think there might be some good scores Friday with the wave that just teed off, the gala said. It's going to be cold, but hopefully no rain and wind. We'll see. I play great, and that's all I can do, really. Five days after weather shortened the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am to 54 holes, storms followed the PGA Tour to the desert. A chilly morning gave way to wind and heavy rain that left pools of water on the greens at TPC Scottsdale. The stadium course was deemed unplayable around noon, leading to a delay of three and a half hours. About half the field was unable to finish following the delay, leaving the rest to return Friday morning to resume their first rounds. Figala returned to sink an eight-foot birdie putt on the par four sixth hole and closed with two pars. His closest pursuer was Andrew Novak, who was five under through nine holes. In LIV golf, Varner Casey share early lead in Las Vegas. Harold Varner III made an impressive turnaround in one week, going from last place in the LIV golf season opener to a 7-under 63 on Thursday to share the first-round lead with Paul Casey. LIV Golf Las Vegas is being held the same week as the Super Bowl and drew a reasonable turnout at Las Vegas Country Club, despite temperatures that barely cracked 50 degrees when the shotgun start began. Varner opened with two straight birdies and closed with two birdies on his last three holes. He began the season last week at the Mexican resort of Mayacoba and finished last in the 54-man field, 26 shots out of the lead. Varner said he got in some work with Butch Harmon, the esteemed swing coach who lives in Las Vegas and doesn't travel much. Key to his round was not having to take penalty drops when he hit a few wayward tee shots. Asked what he thought would be a winning score, Varner said jokingly, The biggest thing for me was not finishing last. I was kind of ticked off because first of all, it's embarrassing. And second of all, I think I'm better than that. So prove it, Varner said. That's good for me. It's a good spot to be. And one story from the NFL. Jackson wins second. AP NFL MVP Award from Las Vegas. Lamar Jackson was a near-unanimous choice for his second Associated Press NFL Most Valuable Player Award announced at NFL Honors on Thursday night. Baltimore's all-pro quarterback received 49 of 50 first-place votes from a nationwide panel of voters that includes media members who regularly cover the NFL, former players, and coaches. Jackson led the Ravens to the NFL's best record in the regular season, but they lost to the Kansas City Chiefs in the AFC Championship game. The 27-year-old Jackson is the fourth player to win his second MVP before turning 28, joining Patrick Mahomes at 27, Brett Favre, 27, and Jim Brown at 22. San Francisco 49ers running back Christian McCaffrey ran away with the AP Offensive Player of the Year award. Cleveland Browns edge rusher Miles Garrett beat out T.J. Watt for AP Defensive Player of the Year. Houston Texans quarterback C.J. Stroud won the AP Offensive Rookie of the Year award in a landslide. Defensive end Will Anderson Jr., Stroud's teammate, won the AP Defensive Rookie of the Year award, outgaining both Jalen Carter and Kobe Turner by two first-place votes. The Browns took home four awards. 
quarterback Joe Flacco, who came off the couch to lead the Cleveland to lead Cleveland to the playoffs, won the AP Comeback Player of the Year. <clears throat> Kevin Stefanski edged Houston coach Demeco Ryans for AP Coach of the Year honors by one first-place vote. Defensive coordinator Jim Schwartz won the AP Assistant Coach of the Year award after guiding the league's number one ranked unit. Buffalo Bills quarterback Josh Allen got the other first-place vote and finished fifth overall in voting. Dallas Cowboys quarterback Dak Prescott was second with 152 points. McCaffrey came in third with 147 points, and teammate Brock Purdy was fourth with 97. Pittsburgh Steelers defensive lineman Cam Hayward was named the Walter Payton Man of the Year. This was the sixth time the Steelers nominated Hayward for the award. Hayward created the Hayward House Foundation that supports several initiatives in the Pittsburgh area. The foundation also honors his father, Craig Ironhead Hayward, a fullback who played 11 seasons in the NFL. He died in 2006 at 39 of brain cancer. In NFL Hall of Fame news from Las Vegas, first-time candidate Julius Peppers headlines the 2024 Pro Football Hall of Fame class that has a distinctive defensive feel. The star defensive end was joined by another elite pass rusher in Dwight Freeney and do-everything linebacker Patrick Willis in the modern era category announced Thursday night. Prolific receiver Andre Johnson and dynamic returner Devin Hester also got voted into the hall from the group of 15 finalists. Two more defensive players got in on the senior category with linebacker Randy Gratishar, and defensive tackle Steve McMichael, getting the necessary 80% support. And these NFL briefs. Chargers. Jim Harbaugh is bringing in another familiar face to direct Los Angeles' offense. Greg Roman was hired as the offensive coordinator. Roman was Harbaugh's coordinator during his four-year tenure with the San Francisco 49ers and also was associate head coach at Stanford under Harbaugh in 2009 and 10. Browns. Other than a few years after they moved to Baltimore, Cleveland has always played its games on the shores of Lake Erie. That could change. The team is reportedly nearing a deal to buy 176 acres in a suburb south of Cleveland, a site that could be used to build a new stadium if the Browns are unable to work out an agreement with the city after their lease expires in 2028. Panthers. Brad Idzik is joining Carolina as the new offensive coordinator, and Tracy Smith will be the special teams coordinator. Ejiro Evero will stay on as the defensive coordinator. Idzik and Smith both worked with new Panthers head coach Dave Canales in Tampa Bay and Seattle, and the return of Evero saves him from having to hire a completely new defensive staff. And finally, the Bengals. Cincinnati hired Justin Rascati as pass game coordinator. The Bengals also promoted Brad Cragthorpe from assistant quarterbacks coach to quarterback coach. And with a few minutes left, we'll turn to Ask Amy. Consumer not interested in a talkative trainer. Dear Amy, sometimes I want some help with a skill, for example, skiing. I'm a perfectly competent skier, but I know I have some quirks in my form, and some one-on-one -on -one targeted work with an instructor might help me to straighten them out. Ditto weightlifting and physical training. My problem is that signing up for a lesson through a resort or a health club is such a roll of the dice. 
Half the time, I get an instructor who is bound up in their own shtick. Last year, I took a class with a teacher who spent most of the time showboating and regaling us with stories of ski issues he had helped people resolve in the past. Another time, I got an instructor who was tediously insecure about giving pointers and advice and constantly musing about how out of practice they were with giving lessons. We're all human, but it's so frustrating to get put in the position of being a captive audience. This is a paid service, and the objective is to help me do better at something I care about. It's not cheap, especially when it's a one-on-one lesson. Do you have advice about how to communicate with schedulers when I am contracting for a lesson so that I get an instructor who fits my style? I've tried I work better with female instructors in the ski scenario, and I tend to work better with physical trainers close to my age in the gym. But when I say those things, I feel like I'm overstepping in some way. And no matter how pleasant I try to be when making the request, it's often not received well. I'd really appreciate your help. I would love to have a good experience this winter with a solid, productive ski lesson. Signed, Ellie. Dear Ellie, I can imagine your frustration. Private instruction can be extremely expensive. The idea is for you to soak up a lot of instruction in a concentrated amount of time. This encourages you to take the lessons you're receiving and apply them later on your own time. Attentive and competent instructors also offer lessons that are vital to your safety. Anytime an instructor doesn't instruct or waste your time and money by delivering unrelated monologues, you should notify management, ask for a refund, and or a gratis session with a different and more qualified trainer. If you are looking to maximize your experience, your stated parameters to the scheduler, preferring to work with female or compatible age instructors, are insufficient. Be very specific in your query. I will show up on time and ready to learn, but I need a trainer, instructor, who devotes the class time to instruction. So if you can schedule me with a no-nonsense non-talker, I'd appreciate it. Dear Amy, like the woman who signed her question in a bad place, my husband was overreacting and angry, and I experienced her stress on a smaller scale. I insisted that he see his doctor, and he was evaluated and prescribed antidepressants. My husband says it was the best thing that ever happened for him. It really changed him back to his more positive personality. Signed, Grateful. Dear Grateful, I agree that this husband needs a mental health screening, and I hope this wife can somehow persuade him to see a doctor. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Friday, February 9th. I'm your reader, Mark Bedford. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thanks for listening.
in the People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. With half a dozen measles outbreaks currently underway in the U.S., as well as several serious international outbreaks, the news on measles vaccine from Denmark is important. Researchers conducted a nationwide study that included everyone born between 1999 and 2010. With more than 650,000 children in that group, they had more than 5 million person years of follow-up. The Danish health system keeps excellent records on all of its citizens, including the children. Consequently, the scientists are confident that the 6,517 children diagnosed with autism during the study period are all the children who developed this condition. Children who did not receive the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, or MMR, were equally likely as vaccinated children to develop autism. The investigators conclude, the study strongly supports that MMR vaccination does not increase the risk for autism, does not trigger autism in susceptible children, and is not associated with clustering of autism cases after vaccination. The Food and Drug Administration has just approved a completely new type of antidepressant, The nasal spray, called esketamine, is expected to help people who have not responded to standard antidepressants. It will be marketed under the brand name Spravato. This drug is chemically related to the injectable anesthetic ketamine that's been on the market since 1970 and is available generically. Although esketamine is administered as a nasal spray, people will not be permitted to purchase it for home use. They will need to use Spravato under medical supervision at a clinic or doctor's office. Some experts have challenged the FDA's approval process for esketamine. While two clinical trials demonstrated some benefit, two others did not show that esketamine is better than placebo. Side effects of this novel antidepressant include nausea, dizziness, headache, and a feeling of dissociation. FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb unexpectedly announced his departure from the agency this week. Experts were puzzled by his announcement since he has received high marks from the administration, industry, and even some consumer groups. Dr. Gottlieb has raised questions about teen vaping and has been an outspoken critic of pharmacy chains that sell tobacco products to minors. Some commentators speculate that these stances might be related to his abrupt departure. His explanation for the sudden departure is that he wants to spend more time with his wife and young children. Dr. Gottlieb is a survivor of Hodgkin's lymphoma. Another week, another drug recall. Many lots of ARB blood pressure drugs, including Losartan, Valsartan, and Herbisartan, have been recalled over the past eight months. These medicines were contaminated with potential carcinogens known as NDMA and NDEA. Now, Heterolabs has recalled 87 lots, and Tarrant Pharmaceuticals Limited is recalling 100 lots of Losartan tablets. These pills contain an entirely new contaminant just identified as NMBA. It, too, is a suspected carcinogen. All three of these nitrosamine contaminants are apparently created as a result of the manufacturing process. FDA Commissioner Gottlieb stated, We're making important strides at understanding how these impurities form 
and we're continuing to examine if nitrosamine impurities may also arise during the manufacture of other ARB drug products. The FDA is committed to implementing measures to prevent the formation of these impurities during drug manufacturing processes in the future. Cocoflavonoids may have some benefit for people with multiple sclerosis, according to a small study. Previous research showed that dark chocolate rich in cocoa compounds might improve symptoms of chronic fatigue. The investigators recruited 40 people with relapsing remitting MS to drink cocoa every day for six weeks. Nineteen of them got high flavonoid cocoa, while 21 drank low flavonoid cocoa. At the end of the study, those on the high flavonoid cocoa had slightly less fatigue and could walk somewhat farther in six minutes than they had at the outset. They also reported less pain. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week.